My wife spent nine months uh, in Africa working at an orphanage, and I remember talking to her when she was trying to raise support and kind of going and visiting uh, her home church. She told me about this Christian guy she talked to, this older gentleman, um, and he said he, he wanted to pray for her when she went on her trip to Africa, but he, he warned her, and he said, don't be one of those people who looks up, spends so much time staring up into the sky that you forget how to live life here on earth. It's kind of this weird comment, but what he was communicating is that he hoped she didn't become one of those super spiritual missionaries who was so concerned about God and so focused on spiritual things that she forgot how to live well here in this earth, something real. And while that may be something that none of us would say out loud, we all kind of walk this boundary of what's, what's the impact my faith has on things which are real, right? How much does what I believe about Jesus shape what I do with my friends? How much does it shape uh, who I hang out with, what I do, what my goals are, why I am in school, the clothes that I wear, and the activities that I do? Because all of us at some point are actually considering, whether we're thinking of it or not, we're considering the impact God has on the external things that we live through in this life. And see, we're starting this new series in the book of 1 Peter, which is an epistle. It's a letter written by Peter the Apostle to some churches. And the series is called This Next Life. It's called This Next Life because uh, what we want to focus on in this book is the tension that Peter paints with uh, a gospel motivation for tomorrow, the gospel hope that we have, but the present indicatives in our life today. What implications does that hope have on how I live my life today? And what makes us distinct in that? And what I want us to see in this series is if we have a really genuine faith, like a really true faith, and I'm not saying like if we have a really good faith, I'm saying if you have what is a true faith, it is impossible for your captivation with Jesus to not change the things you do here on this earth. In fact, what Peter's going to show us is if you really want to care for people here on this earth, if you really want to make a difference here on this earth, if you really actually want to be earthly minded, it starts with a clear picture of the next life. It starts with a clear picture of the life we have yet to come in Jesus Christ. And it's no secret that all of us in our lives kind of walk this, we live in this tension between faith and life. Most of you are here probably at this point in the, in the school year. You're here because you have some sort of background in church. You grew up going to youth group, going to church. You maybe attended college ministries last year here on campus. Um, and now we're trying to figure out together what it looks like to live Christianly here on a campus, maybe in a new city, uh, maybe living with new roommates, maybe living in a place you've never lived before with new friends, and we start to wrestle with what does our Christianity look like when things are different? What does our Christianity look like when we're moved from kind of that, that life we were once in and we're put in something different? And it's actually to people wrestling with those exact same things that Peter writes this letter. This is the opening of First Peter, and look at what he says. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter's writing to this group of people who's, who are in dispersion, 
meaning they're scattered, and he lists five areas and provinces which are all across what is now modern-day Turkey. And they're, they're all over this thing, and he's writing to these people, calling them exiles, or a, a different interpretation, strangers, or yet another inter- interpretation of the word is aliens. People who are geographically placed inside of one culture, but ultimately they belong to a completely different culture. They live as a fish out of water. They live as someone different, removed from what is naturally theirs. And what Peter is writing here to a geographically scattered church, which is beginning to endure physical persecution, it can certainly shape what we think about life here at the University of Montana. What Peter is writing to 2,000 years ago to a people group just like you is still important and still, uh, and still uh, impactful for us today. And Peter's after a faith, and that's what we want to look at tonight. Peter's after a faith which matters regardless of where you live or what's going on. And what we're going to see tonight is we're going to see faith, true faith, it promises, it per, uh, preserves, and it produces a present joy. So true faith promises, uh, preserves, and produces a present joy. And what I want to do tonight is I want to take that idea... And I want to break it down uh, and look at three things with which faith allows us to do. So if you're in here, you probably are someone who at least is open to the idea of faith. Or maybe you consider yourself uh, a man or a woman of faith and you raise your hand in a sociology class. If how many of you are faith-based people. But what I want to look at is what does that faith allow you to do? And does it line up with what the Bible says faith should allow us to do? And so the three things we want to look at is that faith allows us to hope, faith allows us to suffer, and faith allows us to rejoice. And so we're going to look at those three things. So I just want to pray for us real quick. Um, Lord, uh, I thank you, as Anna said, that you've brought us here together. I thank you that uh, you have uh, put us here not by random chance, that this isn't an assembly of 30 people who have randomly uh, intersected here tonight, but these are people who you have brought here for a purpose. And Ephesians 1 tells us that it's before the foundations of the world that you have ordained the plan for people. And so we are here not on accident, but we are here according to your good will that you would accomplish something great in us. Um, Lord, I thank you for those who are here. I pray that we would see a true portrait of faith in here, which shapes how we live in a secular world, on a secular campus, with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, Sarah and I, we just watched a movie last night. Has anyone seen The Man Who Knew Infinity yet? So no one, I hadn't heard of it. I don't know what, where she, it was like a random red box spit out movie. Um, but what it was is it was this movie about this Indian mathematician who was creating formulas. It's based on a true story, creating formulas which solved math's deepest secrets, math's deepest problems. And he came, uh, he got paired, unlikely, he was from India, had no, no formal education, but he got paired with an English professor in England who was highly successful in the area of mathematics. And the drama in this movie was, here's this Indian mathematician who has all of these formulas that he's produced to solve mathematical theories. And he is certain that they are true. He knows that what he's done has produced a formula which is right. But this English professor says, if we're going to publish these, we need to not just have faith that they're right. We need to have the truth that they are right. You need to prove that these formulas actually correspond to what is real. And so this, this plot develops of this Indian who has what he th- believes to be true, 
And now he's trying to prove that it's true. And in our own lives, we all walk this same tightrope between faith and proof. Oftentimes we have faith in one thing, but we're just hoping that the proof matches the faith. You're here probably because you have faith that an education will assist you and you hope, therefore, to have a good job someday. You're here at GCF maybe because you hope to find meaning in your life or at least a place to belong and you have faith that some Jesus talk or gathering together will do something for you. You might hope that you could have a relationship one day which brings you comfort and you have faith that in doing that, you'll find true relational joy. We all have hopes which produce a faith, and we all have faiths which are rooted in a hope. But what that movie showed last night, and what our hearts timidly confess, is that we all need to face the reality that there is a potential that sometimes our faith is misguided. That sometimes the things we have so much faith in to be true are not actually based on what is true. Sometimes what we hoped for, what we worked for, and what we labored for doesn't produce something that is actually real. However, the Bible's hope is different. Peter offers a biblical portrait of hope in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So two things that are important here. This is this paragraph uh, in your Bible. If you're looking at it, you see verses three through nine is one paragraph. In Greek, that's one sentence. And so there's really no clean breaks. We're like cutting Peter off in the middle of his thought. So it's one of the most dense paragraphs um, in in the Bible. And so we're not going to cover everything, but we just want to look broadly. And so what I want to see right here are two things in this uh, part. Uh, I want to see first um, that, and I think I skipped a slide. The first point we want to look at is that faith allows us to hope. Faith allows us to hope. We see that because it registered in all of our hearts. But the first thing that's important here in this text is that the Bible says we have a living hope. That's really something unique to just think of a living hope. Just even like with language, what's happening is describing a hope which is living. And I want you right now in your, your hopest part of your brain to think of the hopes you have right now. What do you hope happens in school tomorrow? Perhaps in a test or in a midterm. What do you hope happens this weekend? What do you hope happens with your life when you get that degree? And as we think of those things, those are merely just potential hopes, right? They're not actually real. We have no proof that it will ever happen. It's just a hopeful hope. That's what hopes are. They're not living because they haven't yet happened. But here, Peter is saying we have a living hope, a hope which is already alive, a hope that actually interacts with things that are real, a hope based on a pattern which impacts our daily life, a hope for today, a hope for tomorrow, a hope which endures, a hope which is more actual than any hope our greatest dreamers could ever think of. So what makes our hope a living hope? We'll look back at what he says, 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do we have a living hope? Just right here, first thing we know about a Christian hope is it's living and it's based off of what? It's because Jesus rose from the dead. The hope for Christian life comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no hope in just gathering as a church. There is no hope in just having a set standard of morality. There's no hope in singing good songs makes you a good person. The only hope Christianity offers this world is tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that gospel and through that man, Jesus Christ, we receive salvation. You see, Jesus took all the sins we've ever committed and here's something, uh, I was just doing a member interview with someone who's applying at our church, and he, he said this in a way where I've just never heard it, and it was great. He said, I realized when I was saved at a young age that not only did Jesus die for my 12-year-old sins, he died for my 36-year-old sins. It's not that Jesus died for my sins up until that point, and then I became good and sinned no more. Jesus saw all the sins I would ever do in my entire life, and he died for those sins. Jesus took those sins. He took all the sins we've ever committed, all the sins we would commit, our, our most explicit sins and our inner dark secrets, and he bore their punishment. He died under their weight. He went to the cross. He, he appeased God's wrath. And then he rose again. It's a story that because it's the greatest story ever told, we begin to lose the amazement of that fact, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus came back to life, and we now have movies and books which have stories of people coming back to life. Kung Fu Panda 3, Poe, is that the panda's name? Poe came back to life. And we're just so used to this, but here is a man who was really dead and came back to life. You see, in my mind, and my mind is really the only mind that matters in my world, the best hamburger place in the whole wide world is Hudson's Hamburgers in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Jordan, are you of this mind now? See, okay, so here's the thing. So my whole family knows, has great faith in the fact that Hudson's is simply the best hamburger place in the world. And yet I bring people there and I'm always nervous. Why? I'm always nervous because there's this sneaky variable which works in and that's that not everybody likes the same food. Not everybody's tongue is as amazing as mine and just married to this Hudson's hamburger here. And well, what if they don't like it? What if their taste buds desire something different? Hudson's allows two toppings. What if they don't like pickles and onions? What if they want mayonnaise and they don't have mayonnaise there? What if they want some combo of fry sauce that they don't have? What if this Hudson's lacks something? What if they like their burgers cooked a different way? And because of that, we look at something which I say is good as objective as I can be, this is good, and yet it fails to satisfy everyone. But the hope of Jesus Christ is a far greater and more concrete hope for the universe because we all have the same taste of death. We all have the same palate for the flavor of life. You're either alive and your heart is beating, or you are dead and you no longer have life. And Jesus was dead. You will never be more dead than Jesus. You will never be less dead than Jesus was in that grave. And Jesus died for your sins and he came back to life. And that tastes good to everyone. We all live under the burden 
of knowing death is coming and knowing right now that life is good. And the fact that Jesus died your death so that you could live his life isn't a matter of personal preference. It's the greatest universal offering this world has ever known. It will satisfy black men and white men. It will satisfy rich women and the poorest child because we all know the basic existence of life and death and we know that Jesus came to solve that problem. You see, to be in Jesus is to have the hope that Jesus died and rose again. And because of that, if we believe in him, we too, though we will die, will rise again. We have a living hope. Do you hear that? A hope we can point to. Because you go big up, dig up any other religious figure's grave and you'll find bones. There's no bones in our grave. There's no casket in our church because we have a living hope. Jesus was already the case study for every human being who would ever live, and for those who call upon his name, they too will rise to the living hope. And this brings us to the second point here, because not only are we born again to a living hope, there's also another preposition that he says. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. To an inheritance. So in verse 3, we see we're born again to a living hope. Verse 4 Born again is, is what is happening. Another preposition to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so all of this is prefaced by, by God's mercy. Why do we get anything in Christianity? Not because we tried hard, not because we looked good, not because we deserved it, not because we were born in the modern era. Anything which happens starts in the first or the third line of this text where it says, according to his great mercy. And according to God's mercy, not only do we have a living hope now, but that hope is based on a great inheritance, which will come later. You see, in 2006, one of the richest women in China was named Nina Wong. And her inheritance at that point was set to go, in 2006, it was set to go to her children. This story is so humorous, I can't help but smiling right now. Because here's what happened. She was estimated to be worth 13 billion American dollars. Okay, that's like, that's, that'll pay off your student loans. Um, and so she has this money, I think she has four kids at this time, but in 2007, or excuse me, in 2006, she gets diagnosed with cancer. And she was introduced to this feng shui master named Tony Chan, who promised her that if he gave, signed over her inheritance to him, he would give her the gift of eternal life. And she took it. And one year later, she died. And all 13 billion of her dollars went to this fraud master who conned her out of it. But you see what she did there? She banked everything she had on something eternal. She wanted something which wouldn't fade, which wouldn't become defiled, which was imperishable. But what that story shows is that oftentimes fact is stranger than fiction, but also shows us that no man can produce an eternal guarantee. Not the vast amount of money, not the top religious figure, but here in 1 Peter, God is offering an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And while none of us are just objectively as foolish 
as this lady. No one is going to believe this scam. No one is going to sign over their money to someone who offers them eternal life. I saw somebody comment on the article, if he knew he was giving her eternal life, why would he ask for her inheritance? Uh, it's kind of an odd thing to ask for if you think she's going to live forever. But while none of us are that foolish, how many times do we put our hope on things we know will fade? We put our trust in things we know that will one day be worn down, or they'll break, they'll wear out. We think a relationship will be there forever. We think a college degree will be there forever. We think the joy of intimacy or entertainment will be there forever. But even if we can find something that we know is consistent, and will be there for all the days of our life, isn't it odd that often the things we have most guaranteed become the least amazing to us, right? How many of you, when you showed up on campus your first day, the food zoo was the greatest thing you've ever known, right? Unending, ample supplies of food. And I, the last day of your school, that food zoo will still be there. But man, that will have faded in your heart. <laughs> that will have been the last thing you want to go eat. And so even when man is able to produce something which endures, we become sick of it. It becomes distasteful to us. We still look for something else. But this is not true with the gospel. And that's because the inheritance Peter described isn't a thriving sexual relationship. It's not the promise of a lucrative career. It's not simply belonging and making a difference. And it's not food. The inheritance Peter describes is our salvation, which will one day be revealed, is what he says. You see, right now, for those of you who believe in Jesus, we can use the language, you are saved. First, or Romans says that if you confess with your heart and believe, or if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And yet, we need to heed the warning of First Peter, where it says there is a salvation yet to be revealed. None of you have died and risen again yet. None of you have actually tasted that living hope, which means that we need to be concerned with not only this side of our salvation, but the proof of our salvation, because one day we will get to spend eternity with Jesus. You see, one day we will we'll be in a place where we'll never grow tired of Jesus. He will never become lackluster to us. He will never cease to captivate our attention. All the things we look for and long for in this world will find its ultimate head in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And to simply be content that you have faith is not good enough. Because faith isn't what saves you. Faith is what guards you. Jesus is what saves you. Our salvation isn't about this life. Our salvation redeems this life, changes this life, brings utility to this life. But our salvation is about the hope we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is what our faith should remind us of. Your faith right now, if you use the term I'm a person of faith. Does your faith meet this faith? Does being a person of faith mean you show up to church, you read your Bible, you say your prayers? Is faith merely a title in your life? Or is it an active hope in the certainty of what's awaiting you in heaven? And what I love about this is, doesn't this just change the language of our hope? See, how much do we, there's a book out that says heaven is for real, right? And it's this little boy who allegedly had this experience of going to heaven and coming back, and he tells us how great heaven is. Heaven's a glorified Tupperware container in this passage. 
Heaven holds our inheritance. Heaven is not the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation is the God we get to spend eternity with in his new heavens and his new earth. To be captivated with heaven is nice. To be captivated with Jesus is saving joy. How do you think about your faith? How does that captivate your heart? Because here's the thing, God is too good a God to allow you to be uncertain about your faith. If you have vague notions about what it means to have faith and what perhaps heaven can do for you, it's no good. God wants to have a certainty. And because of that, that leads us into the second thing faith allows us to do tonight. And this is a hard transition for anyone, but it's immediately where Peter goes. Faith allows us to suffer. Faith allows us to suffer. This is where Peter begins to merge the hope of our life in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for us, to the just in one day, Stephen just told me the newest numbers are 230 people dead in Haiti today from a hurricane. What bridges those two realities? This is what Peter now tries to address. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice. So he's referencing backwards. In that salvation, in that inheritance, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in glory or in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is one of the most dense sentences in the most dense paragraph in the most dense book in the Bible. So I want you to be certain because there's clauses all over this if you're in grammar. So if we were to remove kind of the middle clauses and the explanations that Peter is using, this is what he says. He says, if necessary, you will be grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may result in glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grieving produces glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ because of what happens here in this middle. And what Peter wants you to do here, and what I want you to do here, is I want you to see the goodness of God and what we often label as God's disdain, right? So frequently we say in suffering, where is God? We say, where did I mess up? What, how many times do we say, what did I do to God to deserve this? Even on a rainy day, you know, oh, what did I do to get this? It's just wired into us. But what if I told you there's something better behind the suffering we encounter in our day-to-day -day life? What if God brings suffering into your life so that the quality of your faith may be tested? You see, it's one thing to say you're a man or a woman of faith. It's another thing to live faithfully when trial comes into your life. You see, if Jesus is your living hope in times of peace, is he still your living hope in the storm of your life? Because if we just saw the faith that you have is something which produces an eternal hope, wouldn't you want to be certain of that? If faith is a matter between life and death, wouldn't you want to have some sort of confidence in that? You see, it took Philippe Petit six years of testing and training to finally be brave enough to attempt to walk a tightrope between the World Trade Center buildings. It will take the whole of your life to test the genuineness of your faith. And that's our joy. And that's God's kindness. That God might knock on the heart of our soul and find it full of the faith which endures. 
You see, God is too good a God for us to head into eternity with an untested faith, blindly hoping with fingers crossed and rituals happening that we will get in. Because here's the thing which must happen. What must you do to inherit eternal life? You must have the hope of Jesus Christ. To get the inheritance, to get imperishable, undefiled, uh, and unfading, there's no 33% pass rate you get one of those. It's all or nothing. The salvation you want, the salvation the rest of this world tries to market and pull at your heartstrings and offer, the salvation you need is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if your life is found to have, found to have a hope in something else, you will perish and you will not enter the hope and inheritance in Christ Jesus. But take heart in this, because what Peter said is the word of God. And the word of God is good, and the word of God is true, and there's nothing more encouraging than true truth. And what this says is we know when we face trial, when we face any suffering, when we endure any wrestling with sin, any trial of doubt, that this is given to us by the hand of God so that we may choose with even more strength than before to trust in Jesus Christ. You see, God brings things into our life to encourage us. And God is so great a God that it's not limited to the things which the world says are encouraging. You had a great day and your devotions were on fleek and you had a good time at church and you've not done any grievous sins lately. Good, be encouraged by that. But what happens when things are harder? What happens when sin's temptation is louder? What happens when sickness sets in? What happens when loved ones die? What happens when storms rage? Peter's saying it's still for your good because it's pushing where you need to be pushed to make sure that your hope really is in the thing which will last because everything else will give way but Christ will endure. See, I've seen it a lot of times in just the, the, the young time I've been on staff at a church. I've seen it happen here in this room where you get people who come to Jesus, their life is great, they're at college, they're meeting new people, they're experiencing new things, they go to GCF, they come to church, they go to retreat, they'll eat in the same uh, halls you were eating at, they'll sit in the same sermons you were sitting in, but the moment that first trial hits, the waves of the storm wash them away, and you never see them again. You see, what happened wasn't that their faith failed, what happened was the storms showed that their faith was never rooted on anything permanent in the first place. That perhaps they got attracted to the community of the church, but not to the Christ of the church. Perhaps they got attracted to the joy of the gathering, but not to the joy of salvation. So you look back at 1 Peter 1.7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, uh, your wedding day is going to be sweet because you get this great ceremony and guys, you will stand up at an altar and there'll be whether, and so my wife and I, we saw each other on our wedding day before the ceremony and we still love each other, so that's good, rest assured. Um, wives' tales are only partially true. And so I'd seen her before, but there was this moment when she came around the back of the church to enter into the aisleway and I was up on the stage and I knew what I wanted to see come around that corner. 
I wanted to see Sarah Nicole Bestwick. Anything else would have been disappointing. Could be my mom. I love my mom. It's not who I'm looking for. Could have been my best friend from college. Not who I wanted. I wanted my wife to turn around that corner. Jesus is coming back for his church. Jesus, what he promised in his resurrection will be made true in his revelation when he returns. And in that moment, will what you want to see come out of that sky be the God who actually comes out of that sky? Will it be the one who says, that was my hope, that was my joy, that was my lover, that was my peace, that is what brought me joy when I wrestled with sin, that's what brought me contentment when the waves crashed in, that's what brought me the joy upon all joy when all I could see was darkness. Or will you say, I don't know that hope. But Christ brings us these things so that we may be stripped down to our weakest and say, that is my hope. That is my God. That is my inheritance. You see, we talk much of faith and I want to prepare you guys to lose it. If all we are is a people typified by faith, we'll always have want in our heart. What I want to be is to be a people typified by Christ. Because one day, for those whose hearts long for Christ through faith guarded by God's power, your faith will become obsolete. We will not be a faithful people forever. We will be a faithful people until we stand before God and we no longer need faith because we live in the real presence. We see the real Christ. We touch his real wounds and that which was once invisible is now made visible. That which was once abstract is now made concrete in the greatest of ways. You see, this life is physical therapy for the next. God asks you to lift 10 so that tomorrow you can lift 20. We can learn to walk with the crutch of faith in the pains of life knowing that on one hand we are completely reliant upon that crutch but on the other hand, we are anxiously eager to never need that crutch again. We are zealous for that day when all we know is truth and faith is in our rearview mirror. We see the power of God guarding it in our hearts, but now we see Jesus face to face. At college this year, you will face trials. But it's not an accident. God isn't losing control. God is refining you. He's testing your faith. He's producing greater joy as you begin to dig your hands in deeper and deeper into the anchor which will hold our soul to the living hope tied to the great inheritance. See, lastly, I want us to see this tension between the promise of inheritance and the promise of suffering, that between those two things, there's something real which happens here. There is something when we have these great polar opposites of hope and suffering, there is something which should typify us. There is something which should be consistent with God's Christians. And we see this in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the final point tonight. Faith allows us 
to uh, have hope. Faith allows us to suffer. Lastly, faith allows us to rejoice. You see, Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He was a crazy person to read about his story. Zealous for Jesus, ready to, to kill and stab those who were trying to arrest him. One who, on the mountain, uh, when, when Jesus was transfigured, and there's Elijah, and there's Moses, and Peter's like, let's build a bunch of tents, and you'll never have to leave. He's just crazy. But he saw Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He sat on the feet, or under the feet of Jesus. And yet here he's writing to a people who have never seen him. Who know him only as this strange, mythical figure. But he says they believe in him. And they know him. And they love him. Because their belief is true in them. Their faith is tied to the reality of Christ. You see, the greatest joy in our life comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can live in the absence of a visible hope. We can live in the darkest room. We can live in the most tumultuous of circumstances and we can rejoice because we have a present faith that is living and proven in the life and death of Jesus Christ, which has endured through centuries of the church, which has saved souls in eternity past and will save souls to eternity future. And that brings us real joy because that truth and that faith is offered to you in his word. See, awkward transition in my text. Teeter tots are one of the greatest food man has ever invented. There may, is there anyone in here who doesn't like tater tots? Good. But even we, these, that's still good. That counts. So I made some for my kids the other day. Becca was there at our house. And uh, I found these. I was total dad. What we were having for dinner was tater tots and ketchup. Um, and I made them and I gave them to my daughter. She just plowed them down. And my son is very finicky about food and he wouldn't touch them. He refused to eat them. Who, what three-year-old boy doesn't eat tater tots? And I said, oh, and they're just like french fries. They're better than french fries. And, and I told him, I said, oh, and these are good. I said, I promise you will like these if you try them. I promise your life will be better if you eat these tater tots but he didn't do it. He wouldn't eat them. And he missed out on the greatest joy his life will ever know. <laughs> and yet here's this, this funny story, but we also have a father who offers us something more joyful, who knows even better than I know. And while I can promise my son he can like the, the tater tots, I can't make his taste buds to like them. When God promises us that his word is joy to our soul, that we'll be filled with inexpressible joy, not only does he produce a product that's that good, but he makes a heart willing to accept that. You see, I talked about a lot of stuff in this sermon. I talked about faith and hope. I talked about Jesus dying for your sins, the offer of a future inheritance. I talked about suffering, joy, and peace. But like Owen, the only way you will know the truth of this good news is to actually act on it is to believe in Jesus. It's not settle for being a person of faith because you were raised in a culture of it, but to dig your hands into the person and work of Jesus Christ and know that he will really offer you a joy inexpressible. For 2,000 years, people have gathered on Sunday mornings and across the globe in thousands of languages in millions of locations, men have preached sermons on the beauty of Christ. 
And if you took every word from those sermons and made it the, the most super, uh, uh, superlative adjective, you got all of the poets of the world, you gathered all of their words to describe beauty and majesty and glory and joy, and you dump them at the feet of Jesus, they would amount to nothing because we cannot express the joy. We can only experience it. The words we use to describe nature, the movement we get at the feet of a mountain with a sun setting behind it, it scratches the surface of joy that comes when we have faith in an object that is true. We hold on to a God who has really saved us. When we're moved by the Jesus who moved to the point of death for us. His son, God's son, died to give us that joy. And that joy is so good and that glory is so powerful that it will consume your life. When someone stands at the foot of a mountain and they look up, they can't help but exhale. If you stand and you spend your life truly looking at the God who gave you faith, you can't help but exhale and live your life in this world around you. It dominates your future and it shapes your present. It gives us a salvation sufficient for every trial and every joy you will encounter here, but it also gives us a life durable enough for the next life. So as we look at the book of 1 Peter, I want to stand here, right here, on the first page of this book and say, believe in this Jesus. Find this faith. Do not be found wanting, but stand one day with the rest of the saints in glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ and say, that was my hope. That was my faith. And then we'll hear, as Jesus says, enter, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your maker. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you have offered joy. Lord, I pray that right now, not through my words, not through these songs, not through this community, but Lord, specifically through your Holy Spirit, that you will fill us with a joy inexpressible. That that joy will come through faith by the mercy of God. That, we will, that there will be people in here today born again through the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, whom by God's power are being guarded through faith so that the tested genuine of your faith, though tested by fire as gold which perishes, may result in the glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ that we may be filled with joy inexpressible, knowing that we have obtained the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And may that satisfy us. And may that lead us to share that with others. We pray this in your name. Amen.